Exodus 19, one through eight. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. A reading from the Psalms of the Sons of Korah, Psalm 85. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all your wrath you turn from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, 17 to 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be li liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. 
<clears throat> Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans 8, 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are, we are continuing with our restoration of, of uh, Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. And as you know, we're looking at 15... Uh, major emphasis of scripture that we think so-called Bible-believing Christianity in America is not, are not very biblical on, that we need to do a rethink if we're going to rebuild. Uh, you build by conviction, you build out of revelation, you build out of understanding. And so we, uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the concept of what it means to love God, because we live in a culture right now where love is kind of a Defined all sorts of weird and wacky ways. And so, and the Bible actually gives some very good definition to what it means to love God. And then last week, we started on the idea of grace based uh, approaches to walking with God versus performance based approaches to walking with God. And uh, so, before I get into that, I wanted to just comment a couple things on the scripture readings today. I don't know if you could put them back up on the wall, but if you could put the one from Exodus back up. And because um, you might say, well, gee, what do these subjects have to do with grace? Uh, well, and of course, we let, last week we used the, the reading from Deuteronomy 7 where God tells Israel that he didn't choose them because they were more in number or mightier than other people. He chose them uh, specifically just because of his own merciful, gracious choice. And uh, in uh, Exodus 19, hopefully some of you recognize this uh, scripture, 
because uh, verses 5 and 6 of this scripture are quoted by uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. And so there's a whole debate over what is called replacement theology. Uh, unfortunately, many evangelicals uh, have been erroneously taught due to a, 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 a mindset called dispensationalism that the things the Bible says about Israel do not pertain to the church. Whereas, in fact, uh, we don't have time to get into that particular subject today, but there are numerous New Testament scriptures that specifically say that the people of God called the church are the new Israel of God, and that the things that the Bible says about Israel uh, pertain to the church. And of course, Peter, 1 Peter 2.9 makes that abundantly clear because it's quoted right from Exodus 19.5 and 6. So I thought I would point out in verse 5 where he says uh, in the English Standard Version and some other translations that if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the nations. One of the things that we try to uh, equip you with at Grace Christian Fellowship is, uh, is hermeneutical principles. Now that's a fancy word. Hermeneutics is just the study of how to interpret Scripture. And there are various principles that you want to bring to the Scripture. Whether you know it or not, you know, it's amazing. I'll ask uh, uh, certain pastors, well, uh, what are some particular emphasis that you have or some particular insights or whatever? And often they'll say, well, we just follow the Bible. But when you read the Bible you bring a, uh, a set of paradigms in terms of how to interpret the Scripture with you as you read the Bible, whether you know that or not. So a lot of times today, one of the paradigms that's quite uh, strong in evangelical circles is kind of an anti-intellectual, well, we don't want to deal with theology, we just want to love Jesus, <laughs> or something like this. And... Um, and there's sort of a kind of an anti-history bias and an anti-intellectual bias. And that is not endorsed by Scripture at all. And so, um, just because you don't want to learn words like hermeneutics doesn't mean that word doesn't affecting you. You are interpreting the Bible from some approach and you have hermeneutical principles, whether you know that word or you don't know that word, if you, if you understand what I'm saying. So, um, so one of the things, of course, when we're trying to equip you with hermeneutical principles, you know, you start with things like Christ is the central meaning and purpose of all Scripture. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but the Scripture bears witness of me. So the first thing to, that you want to be equipped with is how to see Jesus in the Old Testament and New. And in fact, we talk a lot in this church about what's called the apostolic hermeneutic. How did the apostles use the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures that we Christians call the Old Testament Scriptures? How did they use the 39 books of the Old Testament uh, in writing the New Testament. And they did it Christologically. They did it by seeing Jesus in a, as the center of every story, every metaphor, every word picture, and so forth. And so uh, a second thing that you want to bring to interpreting the Scripture is that the whole Bible was written by one author. So even though there's 40 human authors on three continents over 2,000 years, all of it is unified because it's written by one author, namely God, but via the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the Scriptures to point us to the Father and the Son. The, 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 the reason why when you look in Scripture, uh, it's easy to find 70 to 100 word pictures of Jesus 
Whereas if you start thinking about word pictures of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be working a little harder after you get past about a dozen obvious ones. Because uh, the Holy Spirit came to bear witness of Jesus. And so it's a little bit like uh, if somebody is, say, honoring their, their wife or something, and they write a book, and it's all about their wife, and they don't talk about themselves that much because they're really excited about their wife or something. It's, uh, that, I don't know if that's a good illustration, but that's really, when you're reading the Scriptures, uh, there are less things said about the Holy Spirit, partly because the Holy Spirit came to glorify Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. And uh, so... Um, so one of the big, the big picture kind of hermeneutical principles is to look for major themes that the one author has tied together from Genesis to Revelation. So certain word pictures, like the picture, Scripture starts in a garden, and the garden is contrasted with a desert and a wilderness, and the garden uh, theme becomes the city theme, and this theme goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And, so, and there's many such themes. So one of the major themes of Scripture is that God's grace is calling together a people for his own possession. In God's heart, you know, there are things you value. Hopefully, again, the spouse analogy, hopefully it, it's all about your spouse in terms of your your love and so forth if you're married. And God, God is all about his spouse. And uh, the bride of Christ idea is actually an Old Testament idea. God is compared to a husband and his people are compared to his wife. And therefore the theme of Israel being unfaithful and committing harlotries and so forth. The, these, this uh, is not a specific theme to the New Testament. It's a theme that runs through all scripture. And God's heart uh, is all about his people are, if you will, the apple of his eye. So when he talks about you being a treasured possession, one of the things that we, do, we have today is we have a radically individualistic approach to Scripture. For example, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, what you get today, I have, I have been a Christian 45 years, I've listened to uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of the best Bible teachers in our country. So I have heard literally uh, hundreds of messages on Ephesians 2, chapters one, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I have never heard one message on Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 22 is one portion it's one paragraph about one subject. And so what we do today is we take uh, Ephesians 2, 1, that starts out, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, and then he lists the three enemies of the faith, uh, according to the course of this world, according to the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. So that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he goes on to talk about how... But, by grace you've been saved, and that he made us alive together in Christ and seated us at the right hand. And all of this is interpreted in a very radically individualistic way, as if it's only about John Luke. But then he keeps going on in one continuous thought to say, for you were not a people... And you were without hope and without God in the world because he's writing to a church that's, that's being birthed in a Gentile city. And of course, God's principles all through the Bible. If you remember when Elijah was crying out to God and he was having kind of a bad day and he was feeling a little sorry for himself. And, he, and so he says, you know, Lord, they've burnt, you know, torn down your altars, they've... Uh, persecuted your prophets and they've killed, you know, destroyed your people and I alone am left. I'm the only faithful one left. And, and God says, I've, I've, you know, uh, kept 7,000 people that are, that have not bowed the, the knee to Baal. One of the themes throughout scripture is God always takes his new move out of his old move. 
Okay, so whenever God is moving on in the earth, there's a remnant of people that hear the message and get on board with it and move forward, while the vast majority of his peoples don't want to go there. And this is through the whole Bible. When Ezra and Nehemiah were written, they're about the fact that, that both Jeremiah and Daniel had prophesied to the Jews before the Babylonian captivity. Israel is conquered in two stages. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 B.C., and the northern Israelites are, are uh, exported. What's the word I'm thinking of there? Exiled uh, uh, to, uh, to, to what is today Syria, was uh, Syria at that time. And, of course, Assyria is conquered by the Persians, and the, and the Persians are conquered by the Medes, and, and all that. Eventually, Alexander the Great conquers them. But the, uh, after the Assyrians were conquered by the Medes, and the Medes were conquered by the Babylonians, God raised up the Babylonians to conquer the southern kingdom of, uh, of Israel called Judah, which we get the word Jew or, and Judea from and so forth. Judea is uh, the area where Judah was, that when it was restored under, under both Alexander the Great and under the Romans, it was, it was just a province, so it's called Judea. It was no longer a nation of itself, but it's the same place and the same people. But when God, uh, God tells the Judeans that they would be captive 70 years, a lot of people like to quote Jeremiah 70, uh, 29 and so forth, live, you know, live in the cities that I've sent you and seek the welfare of the cities and so forth, because many of the Jews were taking a posture of we're only going to be here for a short time, so let's not invest in the, in, don't buy land, don't build houses, don't invest long term here, because we're, this, the prophets have already told us we're going back in 70 years. And God said, act like you're going to be there forever, uh, build, you know, invest in houses and build, seek the welfare of the city to I've sent you, because it's in its welfare, you'll have welfare and so forth. All boats rise together, and all that kind of thing. So um, when God gives a decree through Cyrus, uh, Cyrus is one of two people in the Old Testament, even though he's a pagan. Of course, the word pagan, that's a little anachronistic. The word pagan hadn't come into being yet. But he's, a, he's an unbeliever. He's a Persian. He's not... Uh, a, doesn't believe in Yahweh or Adonai or the, the God of the Bible, but he's the uh, only the, the one of two people in the Old Testament who are specifically referred to as the Lord's anointed one. And he's one of the greatest foreshadowings of Christ in the whole Bible. And he makes it clear that Christ will be the, the anointed one for all the nations. Major, major point. So, uh, uh, so I'm just waiting because that's distracting. Um, so, uh, when the Israelites, when the Judeans are sent back, uh, a lot of people don't think think this through at all. Do you know that only about three percent of the Judeans ever went back? In fact. Uh, Sindhu and I were having a Bible study this week, and she asked a question that took me about an hour to answer of where did all the nations of Acts 2 come from? Because by the, by the time the book of Acts, by the time of Jesus, there had been uh, several what's called diasporas. A diaspora refers to the dispersion of the people of God through the nations, the first wave of which happened in 722 B.C. with the Assyrians. The second wave happened in 586 with the Babylonians. The third wave had happened in 333 A.D. when Alexander the Great conquered that territory. And he was so impressed with the Israelite scribes that he took the, all the intellectuals of Israel and moved them to Alexandria, Egypt, and to another city in Turkey, his two great intellectual cities that he built with big libraries and so forth. Because when he was, in, when he was uh, conquering Syria the Jews actually sent a delegation to Alexander to show him in the book of Daniel where it's, their scriptures predicted that he was coming. 
You know, modern, uh, what it's called higher critics, because they're committed to an anti-supernatural worldview, they actually say, well, the book of Daniel must have been written, you know, around 100 uh, B.C. or so, or 200 B.C., because they have an a priori commitment to that God couldn't know what's happening before it happens, because they're anti-supernatural. And so they say, well, the book of Daniel must have been written hundreds of years after it was actually written, because how could it so accurately predict the coming of the Greeks and the Romans? Which it did 500 years before, or well, not 500 years, about 300 years before they came. So uh, all that's just to say that a major theme of the whole Bible is that God has a people for his own possession and whenever God is doing something, only a small group of his people will hear what he's doing and, and walk with him and do the new thing that he's doing. Most of his people will try to keep the old-fashioned status quo and won't want to move forward with the new thing God is doing. So that's all contained in that verse in Exodus 19. Moving on to Exodus 19.8, all the pe people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, what does this have to do with grace? A lot. The Lord tells them, if you'll indeed hear my voice and obey my words, then you'll be my special people. Doesn't that sound pretty performance-based? It does, doesn't it? But the whole point is that Israel gave exactly the wrong response. They said, we hear you, God, We're we'll do it. What should they have said? They should have said, we hear you, God, we could never do this. So a couple of guys over here got that right. Um, uh, and, and the whole point, one of the major themes of the whole Old Testament is that Israel always pursued God as if it was by performance. And the, one of the biggest points of the, that the Lord is trying to establish through the 2,000-year history of the Old Testament is that all performance-based responses to God are destined for miserable failure. Israel should have said, Lord, we haven't got a prayer in, you know where, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to do this. Indeed, we're, we're sin, we were born in sin. We're sinful from our youth up. We're twisted. We're perverted. We need a Savior. And God is constantly allowing Israel to fail. And yet, when Christ comes on the scene... Uh, as we talked about last week the, with the, the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the publican, they're still, uh, the Pharisees are still pursuing God by works. Now, people misinterpret all that to say uh, where they were wrong was making... Uh, make, making a central principle out of God's commandments, starting with the Ten Commandments and then all the statutes and ordinances that are based on them. We've talked a lot about what that means, the hypothetical case laws. Uh, and those, the, the problem is not with any of that. That is all accurate reflects God. It reflects his values, it, and it's still his standards of righteousness. But the issue was, who is going to get the credit for doing it? And God is always trying to bring everyone to a place where they see their desperate need for a Savior because you couldn't try to turn over a new leaf and, and uh, um, if, if your life depended on it, which it does actually. One of my favorite people to walk with as he was coming to the Lord was John Bradbury. And, you know, God uh, 
I've never been led like this before with anyone else, but God had put in John Bradbury a heart to, that he wanted to quit certain things and, and certain uh, negative behaviors in his life that were having bad consequences, and he wanted to do what God wanted him to do, and he wanted to please God and so forth. That was a change God had ma made in John Bradbury the first few months that we were doing Bible studies together. But the Lord specifically led me not to tell him that much about grace. I kept, as he would say that, like, I'm, boy, I just don't know how to live more godly and to give up this habit and that habit. And, the, and I'd say, hmm, that's, you know. And, uh, and I waited a month or two until the utter futility of doing it by his own efforts began to be clear to him. Then we started having lots of talks about how the grace of God works. And he was very ready to hear it. Part of our problem in evangelism today is we have too much of a reap right away mentality. You know, and we're told, well, they, you know, Jesus could come back any minute or they might die or whatever. You know, walk with the Lord and do what the Lord is doing on his timetable. That's a very important key to fruitfulness. So anyway... I wanted to point that out about the scripture reading for today, that when the people answer and say all that God says, we'll do. A third thing I wanted to point out uh, is in the Matthew passage, where in Matthew 5, 20, where he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven because their righteousness was non-existent. It was a righteousness based on performance. It was self-righteousness. And if, if you do a study on self-righteousness throughout Scripture, you will see that self-righteousness is extremely odious to God. All right, well, that took too much time. No extra charge, though. Uh, all right, so last week, if you have your outline, it should say at the top, chapters 2A, B, and C, grace-based versus performance-based approaches, from start to finish. And last week we got through Roman numeral one, uh, big letter A, about performance based is, is characterized by self-initiated and self-empowered attempts to live justly or righteously. Now, uh, today I want to talk about two, I have two, three, I should have, I meant to say two slash three types of self-righteousness because the third one is when you try to marry the two together. Uh, it's in trying to create a synthesis between them. So what do we mean by theonomic approaches to, uh, and versus antinomian approaches? This is kind of important, it is especially if you're going to help people come to Christ and grow in Christ, because everybody is taking one of those two approaches. What we established last week is self-righteousness is deep in the heart of every person. Every person, that's why when 80% of people surveyed think that they live a life morally superior to other people. One of the most obvious things that I encounter when I'm working with people who are coming to Christ is they really can justify themselves. Right? People are very self-justifying. They can be a lousy a uh, Christian, a lousy husband, a lousy father, a lousy employee, whatever, and they have all sorts of self-justifying explanations for, for their behavior. And see themselves is not that bad. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, any couple having marital problems, the first thing you should look for is how many times uh, the, a person thinks it's the other one's fault. So, uh, so what do we mean by theonomic self-initiated performance space? Uh, the, theonomic uh, comes from two words, of course, namas meaning law and theos, God. So there are some Christian uh, uh, denominations and some Christian groups that rightly still uphold that the Ten Commandments are God's standard I, even in the New Testament. 
Now, that's very common, especially among some of the almost traditional older denominations, especially Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. Sometimes you'll get this among Anglicans, Episcopalians, especially American Anglicans, and Lutherans. And so there's, there's a right understanding that God's law reflects his character, and it's eternal. So if God didn't care for adultery in the Old Testament, he still doesn't like it today. Okay. So, uh, so generally in a theonomic approach, what the people are trying to do tends to reflect God's actual values. They might, uh, for instance, you might, uh, like I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, I was taught that it's a big sin to skip the Lord's Day. Now, most evangelicals go to church about uh, 40% of the Lord's Days. Because in most, in most of the, the evangelical subculture, Teens tends to be an antinomian approach to performance base. So they say, because we're not under God's law, but we're under grace, the law of God's not that important. Now, what that inevitably leads to is this. Everyone was created in God's image. So you are a creature of law, whether you know it or not. That's why I, you know, like if you're uh, trying to lose weight and you don't have any rules about your diet, good luck with that. I follow that approach a lot. <laughs> you know, uh, you, were, you were meant to have laws, boundaries, and so forth, and you always will. So if you don't have God's laws... As your, as your values and your boundaries and so forth, you will substitute your own or the laws of the group you belong to. And so then you get into extra biblical laws like you uh, women can't wear pants or earrings or makeup. In fact, one of the things you'll notice in any antinomian-based uh, self-righteous performance is the women always get the bad deal. They do. The, you know, the men are allowed to wear like uh, synthetic uh, suits and stuff, you know, polyester or whatever. So they look a little nerdy, but they mostly look kind of normal. Whereas the ladies have to wear no makeup and a skirt down to their ankles and, uh, you know, and don't cut their hair and all sorts of, you know, requirements like that. And of course, in any approach like that, you have to look like you were baptized in lemon juice. You have to look pretty sad and a little bit de depressed. And, uh, and you become very judgmental of others. And uh, that's part of what the fruit of self-righteousness. Everyone else is, more, is a sinner. And of course, it's very great, hard to be gracious uh, because you can't be gracious until you receive grace. Right? So I don't want to spend a whole long time developing the difference between the two. But if you think that through better, it will help you a great deal when you're helping various people who are... Most of the people who are in our church are not like John Bradbury. John Bradbury was very little pre-evangelized. Most people that we've led to Christ, Nathan Hager, for instance, grew up in an uh, antinomian self-righteous tradition, and therefore he was pre-evangelized and he was ready for the gospel. If, if, if you understand what I'm talking about. So what most people that have come to the Lord through Grace Christian Fellowship are usually out of some Christian tradition where they have some Christian ideas in their head or whatever, but they, it hasn't actually translated to the depth of where they actually know God and, are, and have been reborn by God and are zealous for God or whatever. 
but they have a certain amount of religiosity or a certain amount of Christianese uh, in them, and they even believe there is one God in some Christian things, and they're ready to hear about grace. Now, if you're dealing with someone who's antinomian in their self-righteousness, it's very important to help them see that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. And it's not that they fall short of all kind of extra-biblical standards like they don't drink beer and they don't smoke and they don't chew tobacco and they don't run around, drive their car past 65 miles an hour because you'll know angels can only go 65. And, uh, <laughs> and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, you know, so... Uh, and so what, what's actually important is that you actually use the true law of God to help us truly see that our sin is much deeper than we think, and we've offended a righteous, holy creator in real ways. That is because most antinomian self-righteousness are suffering a lot of condemnation mixed in with self-righteousness, but you actually have real guilt that you need to be delivered from. There's condemnation and shame and things like that are, are not true guilt. Uh, and, and God wants to set you free from all burdens of false guilt. But he also wants to deliver you from your real guilt. Of which we all have both. But he wants us to become less confused about all that. So, uh, in true grace, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end in English is the Greek word telos. If you study uh, philosophy at all, uh, a branch of philosophy is called teleology. And again, most people like, don't believe they want to hear big words in our day, which is a silly approach to life, but it's part, very dominant in our culture. So uh, teleology is simply the idea that in the way things are created, there's a clue to its purpose. Okay? So when it says Christ is the end, that's saying a lot more than, than in, if you don't know the Greek than you would get. Uh, Christ is the purpose. He's the goal. He's the final result. In Christ, you're made completely godly and righteous. You're made everything that you were created to be. And what we suffer from is all of us are living miles below our potential. So... Um, I love babies. I love when they cry in church. I do, actually. Um, more babies, the merrier. Um, all right. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to get like one, a couple more points in here, even though we're running late. And I spent way too long on the... Con I shouldn't have probably commented on the things from the Scripture readings. But I wanted to, you... The Scripture readings are chosen on purpose to go with the meeting, with the message. So I, and it wasn't as obvious this week as last week's scripture readings were. So Roman numeral two on this outline, both knowing and knowing Jesus, the only source, fullness, and result of grace. Um, so th that seems like it's kind of lousy English. I want you to both know and know Jesus. Like, what are you talking, like, do I stutter or am I confused? What, what's wrong with this? Again, sometimes the way uh, the Greek is translated in our English Bibles, unfortunately, it causes us to lose the, 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 what the Greek is actually saying. And in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, there's an example of that. Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he tells them uh, that he wants them to be strengthened with power through his spirit, through God's spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they may be rooted and grounded in the love of God, and so that they might be able to comprehend with all the Christians 
the people of God. What is the hagias is the word there, the, the holy ones. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Now that seems like a contradictory statement. Like I want you to know what's beyond knowing. That seems like maybe I'm on drugs or out of touch with reality or something, which I might be. But uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just. Kidding. But what is Paul saying? There's two different Greek words for know. In fact, one in our uh, the Bible on the importance of Bible, our search of Scripture series, chapter two of that is called um, the virtue of knowledge, and we do a study of about thirty different words in the New Testament for knowledge. But almost all the words for knowledge in the New Testament break down into two categories. One is scriptural, intellectual, cognitive knowledge. Uh, the, uh, that would be knowing about the Lord. So it's important, for instance, to study the attributes of God or to study Christology and to know, nor, know understand, say, the Christological formulations that were given to the church in, uh, in the symbol of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., I'm actually thinking about doing a series next, next year at 9.30 meeting about Christology. But um, knowing, knowing script, Scripture and knowing theology, Paul, that's important. And that's what Paul, he wants you to know that. But he wants you to know it so well that, he, that you know that which surpasses knowledge. And he's using a word there. Uh, well, I got it reversed. He, the second word for knowledge is, this, is the one that's about uh, intellectual scriptural knowledge. The first word, I reversed it, is, is, a, is a word that uh, means that he wants you to know experientially what goes beyond what you can know intellectually. And then what he's saying is, I want you to experience the love of Christ. I want you to experience the grace of Christ. I want you to have a tangible, concrete, powerful, life-changing, changing you at the level of your attitudes and motivations encounter with the Holy Spirit of God that surpasses your intellectual ability to explain it. That's what Paul is actually praying for. He's not praying for something that's not attainable or contradictory, he, uh, it comes across that way in English because of the limitations of, of using the same word for know. But he's saying, I want you to know experientially, spiritually, with a powerful God encounter, something that goes way beyond anybody's intellectual ability to explain it or understand it. Now, that is the essence of grace. That's why in John chapter 1, he says, For of Christ's fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, we have a whole series called the Grace Upon Grace series, which is 17 lessons based on that verse. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were, came to be, or you, they were realized through, which the Greek word for through can mean with, by, in, because of, by reason of, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that Moses is not grace. He's saying that the law that Moses gave was a, uh, was a manifestation of God's grace. If you don't believe me, look at evangelical commentaries like, uh, oh, uh, the, uh, the one based on the NIV or the one based on the ESV. Uh, they, like, mo even evangelical commentaries, which... Uh, frankly, are not that, that great usually, get this verse right, that he's not saying that the law was not grace. And he's not, given, he's not given a comparison here or contradiction. He's given a comparison in the sense that he says, God revealed his grace through the law of Moses, and that grace was more fully realized and completely fully realized in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so you know, like we read in Deuteronomy last week, 
God's choice of Israel and his giving of the law was grace. But Jesus Christ went beyond that into the full realization of grace. And so I want you to get this takeaway from this, and we'll probably have to stop here, which I really wanted to go beyond this and define grace. I hope I don't end up with A, B, C, and D on this point because I'm trying to just do a couple weeks on each one. I, I shouldn't have commented on the scripture readings. Lost too much time there. But uh, all grace, we're going to talk about what grace is, and it's a lot more than what most people think it is today. All, all Christian denominations today, uh, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and all evangelical, and all the liberal Protestants, all define grace as great God's undeserved favor, which is part of what grace is. But it's not the full definition of grace, and it's like giving you 10% of something that they should be giving you 100% of. So we'll talk about that next week. That's a teaser for next week. We'll define what grace is. But grace is, is what you need not only to be counted righteous before God, but you need grace in everything he's called you to be and do. And all grace comes through, that is, it's realized through Jesus Christ. All grace is is a result of experiencing Jesus more. And there are things we can do to block experiencing Jesus more. So there's attitudes we can have that actually cut us off from grace. And there's attitudes we can have that invite more grace. Grace. And that's what we're going to look at next week. All grace is realized through a greater experience of Jesus Christ. And there's postures of our life and heart that we can have to invite more experience with Jesus Christ. And that is what's needed to live the life we were called to as Christians to live. We'll pick it up there next week.